Oh, man. You guys are so generous. Thank you so much. I, uh, a couple years ago, booked a hunt in Colorado. Just got back from it. And uh, was with probably one of the top outfitters in the state. We're hunting mule deer. And uh, it was uh, something I'd looked forward to for a long time. I heard about this guy forever. And he's supposed to have been the, one of the top producers of mule deer in the whole state. And so we went to southeast Colorado and got into the canyon country. And it's off the beaten path. If you don't you gotta take dirt roads to get there, and then when you get into the canyons, it's just unreal how big they are. I, I was blown away. I've driven within 20 miles of that stuff all my life, but had never seen those. And uh, just gorgeous. Anyway... First day, we saw nothing. Uh, second day, we saw nothing. Does, but a lot of uh, single does. Does by themselves. And usually when you see a doe by yourself, it always gets you excited because this time of year, it means that she's off by herself and she's about to be bred by a big buck. So we're on the tops looking down in the canyons and uh, um, no bucks. We can't find them. And we're tearing this place apart just looking for bucks. And that goes on three days, and that goes on four days. And afternoon of the fourth day, this guy is really, really down. There are four of us in camp, including the CEO of um, Golden Corral. There you go. Yeah, keep forgetting. I won't say Waffle House. He may be that too, but anyway, he's, he's got several of these restaurants that he manages. And um, none of us, none of us saw mature deer. And so we're in the bottom of the canyon and I, I stopped the outfitter and I said, let me talk to you for a second. I said, um, God didn't send me here to deer hunt. He didn't send me here for the deer. God sent me here for you. The people are more important than the deer. And I'm here to confirm your faith. Because he'd asked me some questions earlier in the week and told me he was a believer in Jesus and that he believed in the resurrection. He had some questions about some of the details around the resurrection. But then he'd go back to cussing and so forth. And so he's Catholic, but he had a, he had a faith in God. <laughs> you know, if you're having a rough time, you might consider becoming a Catholic. you get by with a little bit more. <laughs> And for those of you that are Catholic, you know I'm, I'm taking a jab at you. I'm just teasing. But anyway, um, I said, I'm here to confirm your faith. Can I pray for you? He said, I wish you would. He shoves it up in park, and I, I, I begin to pray for him. And, and boy, God's really moving in the pickup. You can really feel it. And I said, now it's time for you to pray. And so I led him in a sinner's prayer. And he got big old tears in his eyes, and he hugged my neck. And he said, thank you. Man, I needed that. We went back to the camp. I don't know if he said anything to anybody else, but the whole atmosphere was different, totally different. We sat down to eat that night, and this CEO says, do you guys mind if I pray? And I, I don't usually pray in those hunting camps, and it's not because I'm afraid to witness, but it, it, they, they feel like I'm preaching at them when I pray out loud. So I, I will pray over my food quietly, but not openly to, to try to make it look like I'm, I'm preaching at them because that's the way a lot of preachers come across. So 
Anyway, the CEO prayed, unbelievable. I thought, whoa, all this time, this guy, this guy hadn't cursed or anything like that. He's hilariously funny, big guy. He said, I got more X's on my tags than a cat one tic-tac-toe game. <laughs> just, it's like that the whole week. And, uh, but anyway, he prays this amazing prayer and you can feel the presence of God. During that hunt, I asked this question. Do you know a certain outfitter over here? Yeah, yeah, he's not doing good. Really? Yeah, he's hitting the bottle pretty hard. And he's really had some tough years. And he's done some unethical things and it looks like he's gonna lose his outfitter's license. That guy did me pretty much the same way about nine or 10 years ago. I was out there on a hunt and I'd been several times. This time, for whatever reason, he treated me like dirt. And we did not have a good hunt and he put me in a very dangerous situation because we were hunting a ranch and there were other hunters on it and we didn't know they were there. They didn't know we were there. He knew they were there, but he didn't tell me. And he asked me to take a shot at an animal walking on a ridge and I didn't want to do it. And a few minutes later, we drove around that ridge and there were two hunters coming up the other side who had just skinned another animal. And so I left the hunt and there was a little bit of bad blood between us. I didn't yell at him anything. I, I didn't want to get into a fight, paid him, but I, I, I left. And I thought, what a contrast, because I think the first time I was there for the animal, but I thought the second time I went back for the people. And what a difference it makes when you focus on the people versus the other thing. I want to talk to you this morning about leadership for a little bit. And I'm reading from the book of Judges chapter 4. After Ehud's death, the Israelites again did what was evil in the Lord's sight. So the Lord handed them over to King Jabin of Hazor, a Canaanite king. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in the Hereshoth Hagoyim, and Sisera, who had 900 chariots, ruthlessly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years. Then the Israelites cried out to the Lord for help. These are pretty hard-hearted people. If it takes you 20 years to finally start praying about something, man. So Deborah, the wife of Lapidot, and I'm kind of bouncing back and forth between English pronunciation and Hebrew, was a prophet who had become a judge in Israel. She would hold court under the palm of Deborah, which stood between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites came to her to settle disputes. One day she sent for Barak, the son of Abinoam, who lived in Kadesh in the land of Naphtali. And she said to him, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, commands you. Assemble 10,000 warriors from the tribes of Naphtali and Zebulon and Mount Tabor. I will lure Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, along with his chariots and warriors, to the Kishon River. There I'll give you victory over him. <clears throat> In reading this, one of the things we see is that oppression always fills the vacuum that's created by the absence of leadership. When Israel had this great leader named Yehud, they were okay. But when Yehud died and there was no real leader, oppression moves in. 
And I want to say to you that it's important that you realize as a father, as a husband, as a man, that you have a responsibility of leadership, and there's not really any option. If you love your kids, if you love your wife, if you love your family, be a leader. Because leadership is what staves off oppression, but the absence of leadership is what invites it in. And so there's an important lesson for us to learn here. What does it mean to be a leader? God's answer to oppression is to raise up a leader. And this prophetess calls this man Barak and says, you need to go do this. It's interesting to me. She was a judge and, and God had raised her up to give wisdom to the people, but she wasn't gonna be the commander of the army. That was not the assignment God gave her. God knew that it would take a man to do that. And it's not that women can't be used of God. She was mightily used of God and probably had more courage than the army leader did. But she was not the one to lead the charge here. This was Barak's job. In the King James Bible, it says this, and I think it's a little more accurate. It says, have I not commanded you? In other words, God spoke to the woman to say to the man, have I not already spoken to you? In other words, this wasn't the first time he had heard this. She was merely confirming something that God had already put in his heart. And when the Lord speaks to us, usually it's, it's that way. If God uses somebody else to talk to you, I can tell you 99% of the time, God's already talked to you about that and you, you, you just needed a little confirmation. And that's what happens here. So God gives this man this encouragement and then he gives him a strategy. He tells him to go to Mount Tabor and he tells him there, he said, do this by the Kashan River and there I will give you victory over him. There is never any victory without a strategy. You know, when God speaks, the, the best way for us to uh, respond is, God, what do you want me to do? Give me steps. There's always a step. Sometimes you get one, two, or three, but, but the, usually it's just one. And so he had a couple of steps here. Number one, raise up 10,000 soldiers. And then number two, um, go to Mount Tabor. Now, the strategy is always full of wisdom. When God gives you a strategy, there's wisdom to it because the worst place for a chariot to fight is on a mountain. And they're ineffective on a mountain. And God led them to put their camp on this mountain and the enemy heard about them being there and they quickly responded and they came to the edge of the mountain, but they couldn't attack the mountain because you can't fight uphill with those chariots. And so they're stalled around the bottom and, and, and so there was wisdom in the strategy that God had given. Now this leader, this leader named Barak had said to the woman, I will do this, but only if you go with me. You go with me, I'll go. You don't go with me, I won't go. And she said, very well, I'll go with you. But when the victory comes, there will be no honor given to you. No honor given to you because the honor is going to go to a woman. It'll be by the hand of a woman that God delivers Israel this day. So what this tells me is that he was not confident in his own ability to hear God's voice. And this is something that's very much germane to men today. I think that women 
are probably naturally a lot more sensitive to the Lord. They're a lot more intuitive. I think women have a lot more quietness about them or more prone to have uh, quiet times with the Lord. Sometimes we men get so busy and we're out there in the hustle and bustle of a noisy world. And sometimes just because of our nature, we're a little bit more um, calloused. Uh, You can see this in the way men and women drive. It's totally different. Um, Just totally different. I tell my wife, this car in my blind spot on the right side of the road that will not pass and that will not slow down, that just, they, they, they do not feel comfortable. It's like they have to drive in pairs. I said, it's a girl. And it's always a girl. It's never a guy. Guys know that to drive side by side is to invite a fight. Women don't know that, especially younger ones. So they'll drive in your blind spot and you pass them because they're going slow. But once you speed up, here they come right with you. I, I just needed you to, to get in front. And, and, and so they're driving right there by and they're, dear God, I want to pull back over, but you are, decide how fast you're going to drive. And so anyway, you were driving 10 miles below the speed limit a while ago. And now you're driving five miles over because I am. And, and I look, and it's a girl. It's, a, it's, it's just a girl. Every now and then there's some gal that just, and she's gone. But most of the time, um, she's, she's um, not quite as bold. And so we're different. We're wired different. But this guy, Barack, he didn't want to go without the woman. And it reminds me of what I see in so many men and that women are are so much more intuitive to the Holy Spirit than we are. But God called you to be the leader of your home. And so you got to quit thinking that this talking to the Lord thing is a woman only event, a woman only habit, a woman only um, uh, uh, thing. This is your thing as much as it's her thing. And God gives you an intuitive wife to help confirm to you what it is that he's saying. And down through the years, most of the decisions, not every single one, there have been some times that my wife had something that I didn't have and vice versa. But most of the time we've been on the same page. God deals with us both about the same thing. And so what I want you to see is that just because she got saved first and got in a small group first or began to walk with God first and she has this relationship with God, that doesn't mean that you can't and shouldn't go ahead and step into your place. And I see this happen a lot with men. They, they always relegate, well, the spiritual one in my family is my wife. You don't have to replace that. We're not asking you to compete with her. But you should step up to the plate and be the one who hears from God too. God wants to speak to you. And that's what we see here with Barack. Barack didn't want to be the leader. He wanted God to speak to Deborah. And he wanted Deborah on the mountain because he wanted Deborah to tell him when to attack. He didn't have any confidence in his own ability to hear from God. Even though God had told him that he had sent him and that he was the leader for this, he was not going to take his place. And so the reason that the prophetess spoke to him and said, okay, very well, I'll go, but you won't get the honor today. That says that he fell short. So guys, there's nothing unmanly about being spiritual. There's nothing unmanly about being tender. Nothing. We're to rise up and to take that spot. 
You know, it's interesting today what we see in our culture. I, I read something on Fox News on the website yesterday about a, an actress who was upset that she was groped on the set by a powerful producer in the presence of about 30 different men and not one of them stepped up to defend her. She's really upset about that. Where are the men? Well, Hollywood doesn't have real men. They have fake men and they have pack men, but they don't have real men. And the reason they don't have real men is because they ridicule real men. And the image of manhood that they put forth is of a wimp or of a clown. And what you see in all the sitcoms today and so forth, the strong one in the family is always the wife. She's got it all together. And the man is always the, really is like a junior high kid married to this woman leading the family. That's the image of manhood. It, it wasn't like that when I first started watching TV. Men were leaders. The women weren't being beaten down, but the men were the leaders. But over time, we've changed our image of manhood in this country. And so the reason not one of these men stepped up to the plate is that Hollywood had John Wayne, but you ran him off and you ridiculed him and you made fun of him. And so how can you expect one of these 30 guys to step up and be the man that he ought to be when the model that this culture and industry puts in front of the whole country is that of men who can't stand up to a pack? And so the only place you're going to find that kind of leadership is in the Bible and in the church, and not in all churches either, by the way, because there are loads of churches that are not filled with leadership and not filled with men. That's what I love about Church on the Move. We got loads of great men, and thank you for being one of them. But <clears throat> Barack finally got out, did what he was supposed to do, and Deborah said, it's time to go. So he goes down, and he attacks the enemy, really kind of catches him off guard. When he comes to the base of the hill, and he attacks the Canaanite army with these 900 chariots of iron, and by the way, what that meant is they had iron sickles on the axles of their chariots, and these chariots were designed to literally cut to shreds any kind of foot soldier. And Israel did not have a cavalry, they did not have horses, they did not have chariots, so they were highly vulnerable to this. But God led them in such a way so as not to expose them. He said, camp on the mountain. This drew in the enemy. And the enemy comes in, and he's not expecting to be attacked. He's expecting to mount the attack. But before he can do it, God moves, and Barak goes into action. Now, here's what happens. When Barak goes down and leads his men, and they sound the charge, God also moves. And that's what I want you to see about the Lord. God, first of all, gives wisdom. And that was what came through Deborah. But secondly, God gives a strategy and it's time for action. And there comes a time when you've got to take an act. You've got to do something. You've got to take your step. And when you do, that's when God moves. God doesn't move till you move. You move, God moves. This is a partnership arrangement. And so when Barak moved his men down the mountain, that's immediately when God responded. And the Canaanites fell into a panic and they begin to get into their chariots and drive pell-mell. And what they did, they cut each other's threads. And there was a panic that hit them. And this is something that very often happens 
when God moves on behalf of Israel, he actually lets the enemies of Israel destroy themselves. They turn on each other. That's one of his favorite tactics. And so that's what happened on that day. Now, what I want you to see is that these people, these Canaanites, they put all of their hopes into those chariots, and it was a false hope. And so God permitted the false hope to be destroyed. The very thing that they put all of their hopes in became the very thing that destroyed them. Now, I want to talk to you about being a leader. When you're a leader, you've got to make sure that your hope is in God and that your primary relationship is with the Lord, not in something. Man, I love to hunt. I could think about hunting all the time. This CEO of, um, of uh, he's semi-retired right now, of, uh, of Golden Crown, he hunts three weeks a month and, and goes back to work one week a month. And that's, you know, kind of a nice thought, but you're going to have a lot of money to do that. <laughs> and it goes all over the world. But I'm telling you that as much as I love that, I can't let it be my God. Anything that you put false hope in will become your downfall. I, I don't know if I shared this here some years ago, but I'll do it again. You know, when the Spanish came to North America and their horses got loose, and over the years they got out onto the plains, became Mustangs, and, and the Pueblo Indians along the Rio Grande and all the way to northern Mexico, they would train horses and raise horses and so forth. But eventually the Plains tribe got the horse, particularly the Comanches. And the Comanches were in love with the horse. They were the consummate horse Indians. They were amazing. You know, when I was a kid, we lived in the Texas Panhandle and, 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 and then we went back and forth to Fort Worth and I would hear people talking about, well, this is, uh, these Indians were here. And I wondered, what Indians were they? And then, well, they were Comanches. So I'm thinking, okay, what Indians were up there in the Panhandle? Well, they were also Comanche. Oh, the Comanche, there were that many of them? No, it was the same group. They just traveled that much because of the horse. After a raid, those jokers could ride a hundred miles in a night because they would jump from the back of a horse to the back of a horse to the back of a horse and keep going. It was impossible for any cavalry group to ever catch them, any group of Texas Rangers ever to catch them. It was amazing how much territory they could cover. They raided all the way into Mexico to the jungles of the Yucatan because the pictures that they put on their buffalo calendars, buffalo hide calendars, were of parrots in Mexico. All of northern Mexico lived in dread fear of the Comanches. They raided that far. They knew every water hole between the Texas Panhandle and all the way deep into Mexico. It was unreal. But they were rich in horses. And a chief might have 1,500 head of horses. A village then might have a herd of 10,000 animals. And it made them rich by Plains Indian standards. They had way more horses than the Sioux or the Cheyenne in the north because they lived closest to the source. And they were masters at breeding and masters at recognizing good horse flesh and they could steal horses better than anybody. Something none of them counted on and nor did they understand was when you had that many horses, the size of your village now shrinks to 125 people. And by Indian standards, you may be very, very wealthy, but you pay a price 
for what you put your hope in. Because you now do not have enough elders to go around to all of the villages. And you don't have enough wise men to counsel restraint. And the men who lead the tribe are the young men who have a tendency to be a little bit more impetuous, maybe a little bit more hot-headed. And so the first response to anything was war. And eventually they didn't realize they were up against an enemy they could not beat. Because the tide of the Anglo civilization coming against them was so much bigger than what they could ever perceive. And they were eventually beaten. And the very thing they put their trust in was what undid them. The horse was their God. And eventually it cost them. You see, when God is not your God, doesn't matter what it is you put your trust in, it'll let you down. The Canaanites had their trust in those iron chariots and the very thing that destroyed them were the iron chariots. And that's why it's so important that you develop a relationship with God, that you walk with God, that you put God first. Because everything else that you pursue is a false God that will turn on you and consume you in the end. Doesn't matter what it is. You may wind up with the biggest trophy room that any hunter has ever amassed. You may wind up with more money than anybody's ever had. You may build the biggest church, but if church is your God versus the Lord, and if it becomes more about the numbers than it does about winning people to Christ and creating real relationships with them, the idol that you build will become the very thing that undoes you. So... There's a lesson here in all of this. Now, <clears throat> there was a time when the battle was winding down and the captain or the general of this army, Sisera, saw what was happening. And so he fled and he ran to a tent of an ally. There were in that time a group of people, and I'm going to read. Uh, now, Heber, the Kenite, a descendant of Moses' brother-in-law, had moved away from the other members of his tribe and pinched his tent by the oak of um, Zamamim, that man, that's outside my pay grade, near Kadesh. When Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, he called for all 900 of his iron chariots and all of his warriors, and they marched. So what I want you to see is there were a group of people that had been living at peace with the Israelites, but they also lived at peace with the Canaanites. And they went and told the Canaanite general what the Israelites were doing. They actually betrayed their neighbors. It wasn't all of them, but it was this one guy. So Sisera escaped, and he goes to this little village where this guy's from, and there is his wife. And she has a tent, and she sees him, and he's tired, and he's fleeing, and he's come to this place because he thinks he can find refuge there. And this woman says, come on in. Now, it was a death penalty offense in those days to go into a woman's tent, and everybody enforced it. But uh, there were no men there. And her husband is the one who sent word to him about what the Israelites are doing. So he thinks he's got a friend. So he goes into the tent and he says, can you get me a drink of water? And she does one better. She says, yes, I've got some milk. And so she loads him up with milk and puts a big warm blanket on him. And the guy falls asleep. And he's laying there on the ground 
And the women are the ones who set the tents up, take them down. So she's an expert in tent pegs. So she takes the tent peg over and puts it right on top of his temples and takes a hammer and nails the guy to the ground. Now he really did become earthly minded. (laughs) The very thing that he trusted in became his undoing. Leadership. Now, God arranged for this humiliating defeat of his enemy, and he did. But what I want you to see is that that day when the victory was celebrated, the leader of Israel, Barak, didn't get the credit. The credit went to this brave little woman who nailed this guy to the ground. And what I want to say to you is this. Don't let anything keep you from being a leader. It may be natural to you. It may be an easy thing for you to step into. In which case, you will have to temper your leadership because you very often will be too hard. On the other hand, you may be a passive person and you may find it very hard to step up into the role of leadership. You will have to watch being too passive. But what we all have to realize is what your family needs what your company needs, what your kids need, what your neighborhood needs is your leadership. You are serving other people when you step into the place of being a leader. It's not about just jumping up and bossing other people around. It's about fulfilling what God puts in your heart to do. I made a decision last week, I'm gonna be a leader If this guy laughs me out of his pickup and hardens his heart and doesn't want to talk anymore, then that's the risk I'm willing to run. But I'm just going to look him in the eye and I'm going to say, can I pray for you? It's amazing what happens when we take that place of leadership. Other people recognize it. I'm not saying they always respond, but I'm telling you what, the world needs Christian men to step up and be leaders. Thank you very much for letting me come.